This is a podcast for creative Christians, asking them not to create great Christian art, but great art. I want to thank you for joining us. Please subscribe, follow this podcast if you are not already. And then uh, if your platform allows it, a five-star rating and review is very much appreciated and helps us out greatly. Also, if you'd like to advertise on this podcast, Please inquire by uh, emailing me at mattcastworld at gmail.com. We are continuing a series that I'm calling Movies That Moved Me. I specifically want to talk about films that have had a, a definite effect on my life, that moved me when I saw them, and also the hope that filmmakers will strive to make movies more like this Uh, in the future. So a couple of disclaimers about this particular film. Number one, it's rated R for language and other content because, well, they're in a prison. So not one for the kids, folks. Uh, Also, there will be a couple spoilers along the way. Not as bad as you would think, but just wanted to give you a heads up on that as we progress. Uh, The film we are examining today is the perfect example of a movie that was not really totally appreciated when it was released. I think it was loved by the critics, but um, the moviegoers of America didn't really catch on to it until later. Um, Maybe it was the title that threw people off and they they just didn't want to go near it. Um, But the film we're examining is The Shawshank Redemption. It was uh, released in 1994, has a running time of two hours, 22 minutes. Uh, It's based on a short story actually written by Stephen King. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, But as I mentioned before, the film underperformed at the box office. But it was nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay uh, by Frank Darabont, who also directed the film and who you might know more from uh, The Walking Dead. Uh, Best Cinematography, Sound Editing, and Film Score, but zero Academy Awards were won for the the film because it had the unfortunate task of going up against Forrest Gump that year, which sort of cleaned house in the uh, awards categories. It was only really when the film went to video months later that people started renting it, watching it. That's what you did back then. You go to Blockbuster and get your copy. Uh, And they started watching it, loving it, watching it again, recommending it to all their friends. Um, Personally, I think it's a film every guy must see. And I know that probably sounds really horrible in this current climate, but I don't know what it is. I, I think everyone loves the film, but I don't know. There's something about a guy watching this movie that's pretty necessary. Uh, it's, it's almost like a rite of passage film for uh, every man. By the way, it is also the highest all-time rated movie on IMDb. Uh, it has a great ensemble cast. But the film really centers around two characters. 
uh, Andy Dufresne and Otis Redding, otherwise known as Red, uh, played by Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman, respectively. Now, as the film begins, we see banker Andy Dufresne in his car, clearly drunk, at the end of a long uh, driveway. He knows that at the end of that driveway is his wife, who has taken up with a local golf pro. Andy is thinking revenge. He has a revolver, he has bullets, and though quite intoxicated, looks to be ready to shoot both of them. As he's just getting out of the car, the film zooms ahead to his trial, where he is found guilty of two murders and sentenced to life at Shawshank Prison. As he arrives, Andy has no allies, and so he ends up getting abused by some of the prisoners quite regularly. In the meantime, in order to pass the time, because that's all Andy has at this point, he decides to uh, go back to one of his hobbies that he enjoyed before. But he needs the help of a guy in the prison who kind of knows how to get things. And that man is Otis Redding, or... Red, as everyone calls him. And so Andy makes his first connection with Red. I'm Andy Dufresne. Wife-killing banker. Why'd you do it? I didn't, since you ask. <laughs> you can fit right in. Everybody in there is innocent. Didn't you know that? Rumor has it you're a real cold fish. Is that right? What do you think? I'll tell you the truth. I made up my mind. <laughs> I understand you're a man that knows how to get things. I'm known to locate certain things from time to time. I wonder if you might get me a rock hammer. A what? A rock hammer. What is it and why? What do you care? Well, if it was a toothbrush, I wouldn't ask questions. I'd just quote a price. But then a toothbrush is a non-lethal object, isn't it? Fair enough. Rock hammer is about six or seven inches long. Looks like a miniature pickaxe. Pickaxe? For rocks. Rocks. Quartz? Quartz. Some mica. Shale. Limestone. So? So I'm a rock hound. At least I was in my old life. I'd like to be again on a limited basis. Or maybe you'd like to sink your toe into somebody's skull. No, sir. I have no enemies here. No? Wait a while. You understand my concern. Well, if there's any trouble, I won't use the rock hammer, okay? Then I guess you want to escape. Tunnel under the wall, maybe. <laughs> I missed something here. What's funny? You understand when you see the rock hammer. What's an item like this used to go for? Seven dollars in any rock and gem shop. My normal markup is twenty percent, but this is a specialty item. Risk goes up, price goes up. It's making an even ten bucks. Ten it is. Waste of money, if you ask me. Why is that? Oh. Folks around this joint love surprise inspections. They find it, you're gonna lose it. They do catch you with it, you don't know me. 
You mentioned my name, we'd never do business again. Not for shoelaces or a stick of gum. Now, you got that? I understand. Thank you, Mr. Uh... Red. Name's Red. Red. You know, there's only so much we can do alone. That's certainly true inside a prison. But even in regular civilian life, it's also very true. Uh, isolation never works long term. Sure, we don't get hurt. We don't get betrayed. We don't get disappointed by anyone. But we also never know the joys of uh, love and loyalty and friendship either that um, relationship provides. And Andy couldn't go it alone. And so Red kind of became a guy who looked out for him, and quite soon they were friends. And as, as that goes, we eventually meet some of the other guys in Red's group. Uh, one of them is named Brooks. He is the prison librarian and had been so for decades. Uh, we meet him when he's around the age of 70. And he has been at Shawshank for, well, probably 50 years and is respected by everyone. He's a, a very kind and decent man who takes care of a crow that he found in the prison yard. But one day, Brooks goes way against his character by putting a knife to the throat of one of his friends. I mean, what would set off a respectable elder to do that? I got, I got no choice. Brooks, you're not going to hurt Haywood. We all know that. Even Haywood knows that, right, Haywood? Sure. I know that, sir. You know why you're not going to hurt him? Because he's a friend of yours and because Brooks Hadlin is a reasonable man. That's right, that's right. Is that right, guys? Yes. So put the knife down. Brooks, Brooks, look at me. Put the knife down. Brooks, look at his neck, for God's sake. Brooks, look at his neck. He's bleeding. It's the only, it's the only way they let me stay. Come on, this is crazy. You don't want to do this. Come on, put it, put it down. Hey, hey, come on. Take it easy. It'll be all right. I didn't do nothing. I come in here to say fairly well. And you heard his parole come through. I just don't understand what happened in there. That's all. Brooks ain't no bug. It's just, just institutionalized. The man's been in here 50 years, Hayward. 50 years. This is all he knows. In here, he's an important man. He's an educated man. Outside, he's nothing. Just a used up con with arthritis in both hands. Probably couldn't get a library card if he tried. You know what I'm trying to say? But I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. Now catch what Red said about the walls of the prison. First you hate them, he says, and then, then you get used to them. I think that totally applies to spiritual prisons as well. We choose them. We hate what those things do to us. But eventually we get used to them. And they become part of our normal. 
I mean, think of times in your life when maybe an addiction was taking your attention away from God's grace. It was taking up time and attention and money. We love it, but we hate it at the same time. We feel like we can't live without it, and then we feel like we can't live with it. And we only carry shame in our hearts because of it, and, and that's a prison. And so the last person we want to talk to about all this is the Lord. So we, we distance ourselves from him. And so it seems that we're choosing the prison over him. And we get so used to the prison of shame that we've built for ourselves that the walls almost become oddly and sinfully comforting. That's the trap that I'm sure many of us in this audience can relate to at some point in our life. But when the Lord frees us, which is what he longs to do, we may not have the immediate reaction of Brooks. We may not immediately freak out over that because we're, we're probably quite excited and we feel liberated over that being so influential um, because of the power of the Lord working in our life. But keep in mind now that when, when you and I through the power of Christ, when we, when we drop something like that, a prison or an addiction of some sort, all that time and all that energy that we devoted to that prison, now it's going to need to be focused somewhere else. And there can be the hard part. I mean, it, it's, it's hopeful that it will be found in the love and presence of the Lord, that being with Him will become almost addictive, and something that we just have to have every day of our life. Uh, and then everything we do, worship and the Word and all of it, just feeds into that wonderful, that wonderful relationship. Because with Christ, we're not just running from something. It's not that we're just running from an addiction. We're running to something or we're running to someone. We're leaving the prison and then we're going to live as free people. And those two things don't necessarily happen all the time. I know folks who have, who have run from something, which is great, but their relationship with the Lord isn't where it should be, and so they don't know where to go. And remember that our spiritual enemy is trying to keep us in the walls as long as possible. He wants it to be normal. He wants our identity to be as prisoners, even though the Lord has set us free because of the cross. He wants us to get used to our chains. He wants us to think it's always going to be like this, that nothing is ever going to change. Nothing's going to get better. No matter what you do, no matter what you try, you're going to be stuck here. And even if you set foot outside of this prison, you're going to do something that gets you back in here. So why waste your time? This, this is what the fight is about with prison, spiritual prison. So now we get to the crux of the film. Annie gets involved initially with Brooks until he leaves the prison uh, with the library. And he finds a way to raise money from the state, and he turns it into quite a top-notch operation. Um, and on one particular occasion, <laughs> the state sort of overwhelms him, hoping it's the last time he requests because he was requesting on a weekly basis for years. And now they're just throwing all this stuff at him and just saying, please, no more requests. And part of that is uh, record albums and a record player. And so the, the guard who shows him this whole thing 
tells him, hey, you need to get this picked up before the warden gets back, all right? So he, he tells him he's going to use the restroom, and uh, he wants Annie to get everything put away as quickly as possible. Well, turns out Andy can't resist the urge. He, uh, he finds a record. He finds a record album of a, uh, a Mozart opera. And so he locks the guard in the bathroom and then locks himself into the library so nobody can get in. He starts playing the record album of Mozart and is enjoying it thoroughly and decides he wants the entire prison to hear it. So he grabs the PA microphone, which is nearby, turns it on and puts it next to the record player. And now everyone at the prison can hear this. Well, this arouses the anger of all the guards and the warden. Everyone's trying to get in and uh, he won't let them. This kind of mischievous part of his personality kicks in. He knows he's going to get in trouble bad. And sure enough, he ends up spending two weeks in solitary confinement for that act. But upon getting out, he joins his friends in the cafeteria. Hey, look who's here. Nice grow. Couldn't play something good, huh? Hank Williams or something? They broke the door down before I could take requests. Was it worth it? Two weeks in the hall? Easiest time I ever did. I had Mr. Mozart to keep me company. <laughs> so they let you tote that record player down there, huh? He's in here. In here. That's the beauty of music. They can't get that from you. Haven't you ever felt that way about music? Well, I played a mean harmonica as a younger man. Lost interest in it, though. Didn't make much sense in here. Here's where it makes the most sense. You need it so you don't forget. Forget? Forget that there are places in the world that aren't made out of stone, that there's a there's something inside that they can't get to, that they, they can't touch. It's yours. What are you talking about? Hope. Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no use on the inside. Hope is a dangerous thing. So is Red right? This becomes the central question of the film. Now the word hope means a feeling of expectation of and a desire for a certain thing to happen. Now Red is a guy who has been institutionalized for decades. He's been turned down by multiple parole boards. He is stuck there. And he knows no other way of existing. So when, when Andy shows up with his hope talk, it arouses the anger of Red, and he doesn't even want to be tempted by it. And he's warning Andy, this only leads to destruction. And I do think his concern for Andy is, is, is plays a big role in that. But he doesn't want Andy to go crazy, especially considering he's there serving a life sentence for double murder. 
Now, folks, I will tell you, hope indeed can be a dangerous thing. We have all had our hopes dashed at one time or another. Maybe we started a business that failed. Maybe our spouse decided that they would rather be romantically involved with someone else. Maybe our adult child has chosen not to believe in God anymore and is now living it up, quote unquote, as a result. Maybe we thought we would be more financially free by this point in our life. There was probably something you prayed about, heard from God about, and stepped out in faith to do, but it crumbled. It didn't happen or it went sour. And then we find our relationship with God fractured or damaged. We believe he teased us. We believe he lied to us or he tempted us, something like that. And we start to believe the absolute worst on him or on us. We must be just so inept and so stupid and uh, or we're so unspiritual, we can't really hear the voice of God. We thought we could, but we can't. And it just all goes crazy. Hope? Oh, yeah. It can be a dangerous thing. And the Bible agrees with that, by the way. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And if you've been there, you know what that heart sickness feels like. When our hopes are delayed or dashed, it can crush us. It can cause us to even shake our fist at God and, and almost put our relationship in danger. But let's also remember from Scripture, our definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1 1 includes hope. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, faith takes our hope and puts substance behind it. It it puts scriptural truth about God and our confidence in his character in order to make faith. We can't have faith without hope. And maybe maybe we hope creatively that we'd be at a better place right now. We'd be done with the book instead of on chapter one. Maybe we started the project well, but it's tapered off since, and we've questioned our abilities. And you're losing hope. You're losing confidence by the day. And you're almost talking yourself out of it, saying, I don't, I don't know what made me think I could, I could write that, or I could compose that, or I could sculpt that, or paint that. It's hard to blame Red for being cynical. He had seen it all behind the walls of Shawshank. He doesn't want Andy to make the mistakes of others he's known over the years. But do you feel like cynicism is sort of setting up camp in your mind? Is it affecting your belief just in general of everything? All I can tell you, my friend, is that the enemy of your soul is after your hope. He's trying to steal your hope, kill your creativity, and destroy the chances of ever making anything again. That's what he does. He steals, kills, and destroys. But we also know from John chapter 10 that Jesus showed up here and died for you so that you might have life 
and have it more abundantly. Okay, it may not be on our terms. It may not be as we imagine it's going to be, but his life is abundant. So what in the world do we do with this hope thing? It feels like a grenade in our hands that could go off at any moment. I just, and we will do the answer to that in a little bit, but we just need right now to give him the room to show us what it is and in the right time. Because the Lord does have a plan, a much better plan. And right now he might be the last person you want to talk to, but there will be no peace in your life until you give Jesus a chance to tell you what's going on. I beg of you to do so today. My friend Jordan Beal has an exciting new book I want to tell you all about. It's called The Process of a Leader. Now, there are many pastors and Christian leaders who have become discouraged and quit over the last few years. In fact, according to the Barna Research Group, 38% of pastors wanted to quit the ministry last year. Leading is hard, and the pandemic made it harder. Well, The Process of a Leader was written to help leaders stay the course and glorify the Lord through their leadership. In the book, Jordan uses biblical examples of leadership like Gideon and Joseph and, of course, most notably, Jesus. Through them, we discover that our true joy as leaders is not in crowds or successful campaigns. It's, it's not in likes or clicks or shares, but Rather, true joy comes in obedience to the Father, to knowing that we're loved as leaders, knowing we are His children. And the understanding of our adoption will help leaders endure tough seasons. Then our joy is full, like Jesus promised in John 15. We're full of gratitude and we're passionate to use the gifts that God gave us to bring others into what we have experienced, into His family. So if our goal as leaders is to bring others into, quote, my church or my organization or even look important or reach a certain leadership status or some misperception of success, we've made a grave error. And that error can lead us right out of joy and God's will and really almost certainly into harm. The process of a leader is about returning to the why of Christian leadership. It's about first leading the person in the mirror. For individual copies, you can buy them at Amazon and Walmart. If you would like to buy in larger quantities, for maybe for your team or your small group or friends, visit theprocessofaleader.com. Theprocessofaleader.com for great deals. Make an important investment in yourself and those you lead. Buy The Process of a Leader today.
let's get back to Shawshank to see where this whole thing is going. Throughout the movie, uh, Andy's knowledge of banking and finance and taxes, things like this, gets him some privileges along the way. Uh, If you want to call it a privilege, he ends up doing the taxes for all the guards at Shawshank and then the guards at the other prisons that they know. Seeing his skill and believing him to be trustworthy, eventually the warden gets involved, but he has different plans for Andy. He wants him to use his skills basically to help him commit money laundering, tax evasion, and bribery, and, and other things. And so Andy, with his knowledge, and he never did this when he was a civilian, he remarks later, I had to go to prison to start committing crimes. So Andy sets up multiple accounts with fake identities, and uh, but all the necessary uh, items that one has to have to open up accounts. And, and But it's all accounts that the warden can access at any point. He can, he can use those to put his ill-gotten gains in all those different accounts, and it can never be attached to him or Andy, for that matter. Well, eventually a new prisoner shows up at Shawshank, and he becomes really great friends with Red and Andy and their, their group of friends, their crew. And one day conversationally, this new prisoner begins to talk about a conversation he had uh, at a at another prison with a cellmate. And uh, the cellmate, who was quite talkative, speaks one night of killing two people, a woman and a golf pro, who happened to be the same two people that Andy was convicted of killing. And now everyone knows Andy's innocent. Now Andy has new hope. With this new information, he can get a new trial. Unfortunately, the warden is having none of it. Giving all kinds of different reasons why it's not enough uh, to even try. But really, he's, he's fearing exposure of his lawbreaking. That if Andy is freed, he, he now no longer has any incentive to protect the warden. And so he tells him he's not going to uh, do anything with this information, which angers Andy incredibly. So in response, the warden puts Andy in the hole. Solitary confinement for two months, which was an obscene punishment. And meanwhile, while Andy is in the hole, the warden literally arranges for the prisoner with the information to be killed by the head guard. So now he's guilty of murder. Two months later, as Andy finally gets out of solitary, he finds Red one day in the prison yard and they're leaning up against the wall. And as they talk, Andy seems to be a man full of hope on one hand, but one whose hope seems to be hanging by a thread. I think you'll ever get out of here. Me? Yeah. One day, when I got a long white beard and two or three marbles rolling around upstairs, they let me out. I'll tell you where I'd go. So hard to nail. So what? 
Zihuatanil. It's in Mexico. A little place on the Pacific Ocean. You know what the Mexicans say about the Pacific? No. They say it has no memory. That's where I want to live the rest of my life. Warm place with no memory. Open up a little hotel. Right on the beach. Buy some worthless old boat and fix it up new. Take my guests out. Charter fishing. Say what to nail. Place like that, I could use a man that knows how to get things. I don't think I could make it on the outside, Andy. I've been in here most of my life. I'm an institutional man now. It's like Brooks was. Well, you underestimate yourself. I don't think so. In here, I'm the guy who can get things for you, sure, but outside, all you need is the yellow pages. I didn't shoot my wife, and I didn't shoot her lover. Whatever mistakes I made, I paid for them, and then some. That hotel, that boat, I don't think that's too much to ask. I don't think you ought to be doing this to yourself, Andy. I mean, Mexico is way to down there, and you're in here, and that's the way it is. Yeah, right. That's the way it is. It's down there, and I'm in here. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. busy living or get busy dying. Get busy living or get busy dying. Those are haunting words for Red as Andy starts to stroll away. But before Andy walks away, he turns and gives Red some specific instructions. And they're very random instructions. He tells Red about a, a town uh, nearby with hay fields and a certain tree with a certain strange rock near it. And he tells Red that if and when he ever gets out to go to that place, find it, because Andy will have something buried there for him. I mean, suddenly Andy just doesn't seem to be making any sense whatsoever. Um, Red doesn't know what to do with all this information. He, he really thinks Andy is, is losing it. And he's probably going to take his own life with a phrase like get busy, uh, get busy living or get busy dying. What's a guy to think? Well, he has no other chance, Red, to talk to Andy before bed check. And so worried with grief, Red literally stays up all night. He couldn't sleep a wink, fearful that Andy will end it all. Was Andy about to get busy dying? Well, the next morning when roll is called and the prisoners are to stand in front of their cells, there's no Andy. Now Red is certain that Andy probably hung himself. 
But when the guards investigate, they realize Andy has disappeared. Now, I won't say any more than that. But the movie will explain to you beautifully what Andy did and how he did it. The warden starts to question Red, because he knows they're friends. And Red is as ignorant as everyone else. He has no idea what's happened to Andy, literally. But let's just say some justice ends up getting done. It's worth your watch. Well, a little while after, Red receives, one day he receives a mysterious postcard with no writing on it. But the postmark says it's from Fort Hancock, Texas. Which Red realizes is on the border with Mexico. So Red knows immediately who sent it. Oddly enough, when Red comes back up for parole, he is surprised to be released. Now outside the walls, he struggles with his everyday life. He's used to having choices made for him. He doesn't know how to live life on his own and seems to have nothing to live for and no one to live for. He's not sure if he's going to make it. But when he has an opportunity, he remembers his conversation with Andy and he uh, ends up getting a ride out to that town, the certain town with the certain hayfield near a certain tree and a certain rock. And alone in this landscape, Red lifts the rock and with just a little bit of digging, he finds a metal box. Inside the box is a significant amount of cash. And a note from Red's dear friend. Dear Red, if you're reading this, you've gotten out. And if you've come this far, maybe you're willing to come a little further. You remember the name of the town, don't you? Say what to nail. I could use a good man to help me get my project on wheels. I'll keep an eye out for you and the chessboard ready. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. I will be hoping that this letter finds you and finds you well. Your friend, Andy. Get busy living or get busy dying. That's right. For the second time in my life, I'm guilty of committing a crime. Parole violation. So Red decides to jump his parole and head to Mexico. He's going to get busy living. And all the while, he hopes that he will make it there. Andy is right. Hope is a good thing. The last verse of 1 Corinthians 13 says, Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. So the Lord must think hope is pretty important to us. But we've also heard how dangerous it can be. It's almost as if the Lord has given us a cannon to use, but we have no idea what to do with it without causing great harm. 
So it's just easiest to let it be. I think scripture tells us where to aim our hope. On a few occasions in the Psalms, David kind of needs a, a pep talk from the despair he's wrestling with at the moment because it affects his outlook. It affects his countenance. He knows people can see him and know something's wrong. Eventually, he speaks a word of life over himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil with me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In other words, I think it's the fact that our hope isn't in a circumstance. Our hope isn't in an outcome. My ultimate hope isn't being debt-free by this date. My hope isn't that I'll be making this much by the time I'm this old. My hope isn't that I'll be cancer-free. All of those can happen, and, and they're good things, by the way. But unless the Lord has specifically spoken this over us, we put our faith not in a circumstance or an outcome. Our faith is in God. And that makes all the difference in the world. We put our hope in the one who made it all and has it all. That's it. We hope in God to, if he doesn't end the storm, calms us in the midst of the storm. We hope in God to, if our circumstances don't change, we trust him to meet our needs at all times because he never fails. If you feel your hope is leaving or has even left, if your soul and your countenance are downcast because you feel abandoned, that a circumstance didn't happen, an outcome did not occur. I want you today to declare that you are going to get busy living. And you do it by putting your hope in the Lord, who can always be counted on, who has never lied. Who does not fail. You can't go wrong when your hope is in him. And then he creates the circumstance. He creates the outcome. And we know it. And we say that it is good. Hope is a good thing. Well, we appreciate you being a part of the MatCast. Please share this with a friend. We would love to expand our MatCast family. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at mattcastworld at gmail.com. Mattcastworld at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Sound Diffusion. This is a production of Monumental Ministries. And if you'd like more information about uh, our ministry or listen to our archives, go to mattministry.com. Hey, thanks for having me over. I had a wonderful time. <laughs>